This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here on this rainy San Francisco day, and I hope that you all are as dry and as warm as possible. And um, my name is Michael McCord. Um, I am the CFO of San Francisco Zen Center and a resident priest here. And um, I am really happy to have all of you here, not just in person, but those of you that are out there online um, that are um, viewing us from the virtual world that is actual, the real world where you are at. So, um, great to have you all here. Is there anybody here who's here for the very first time at San Francisco Zen Center for a talk? Welcome. It's great to have you here. Great to have you here. I saw two, three, a third person. Great to have you here. It's great to have everyone here in our new um, Buddha Hall, which is the, um, uh, used to be upstairs was our Buddha Hall. This is our sitting room, our Zendo, our sitting hall, and it's also our Buddha Hall. And this is also the uh, weekend um, that we have a three-day weekend where it is the holiday on the 15th of Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, not only um, is the 15th, but it's also one of the times when on on Monday, it actually falls exactly on his birthday, which sometimes it, it fluctuates, but this time it will be exactly on his birthday on the 15th of January. So first I want to start off with a little story about busing tables. Uh, Back in 1979-1980, San Francisco Zen Center decided to start a restaurant called Green's Restaurant, one of the first vegetarian restaurants in San Francisco to make a dent and have longevity, and um, it's still around today. At that time, we had students come from here at night, and they would go in the evening, and they worked the evening shift and they would bus tables. And they would go and do things, um, these would, sometimes the newer students would, would get this task, and um, as the story goes, the, the students were doing things very mindfully, very Zen-like, as the um, stereotype is for Zen. And they were bussing tables, and they were bussing them very, two hands with each plate, you know, put it right there in the bussing bin, you know, and carry the bussing bin you know, with the perfect posture and what have you. And after a few days, um, I had to get the, the busters together and say, look, we are not doing things in a Zen way because we need to actually get these tables cleared and it's taking forever. And um, that's actually not what the moment is calling for. This is not Zen. The, the result of behaving a certain way and meeting the moment might provide you with the fruits of practice, which is a groundedness, a centeredness, a feeling of being in the moment. But the term Zen as a verb, it's like being Zen, um, sometimes means all you ever do is things that seem really calm and slow and quiet. And there's never a time for moving quickly or being more aggressive or speaking out or whatever, because that's not Zen. Deep-centered equanimity comes from the practice of meeting the moment. And this morning what I want to talk about is being willing to meet the moment as best we can. 
what the moment is actually asking for, what the times are asking for, in big ways and in small ways, the next conversation that you're in, the small moment when you are by yourself and no one will ever know whether or not you met the moment, what the moment was asking for, not to have cookie number five. <laughs> now cookie number one, maybe it's cookie time. That's great, enjoy the cookie. But cookie number 12, probably long past cookie time. What's the moment actually asking for? And that's the segue that I want to talk about in regard to getting into the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Because if there's one thing that his life so embodies is not seeking comfort, not just looking for what it is that will make me look good, not just um, not saying the thing because I don't want that person to be upset with me, but doing what the moment is actually asking for. Even if it means my safety, even if it means lack of friends, even if it means people being a little bit upset with me, what is the moment asking for in that small space? The space where no one will ever really know. I, I the difference between making a pretty good choice, a choice that looks like I'm a respectable person, I'm a nice person, I'm a good person, or actually what was being asked for in that moment. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. grows up in the South. He gets an education, goes to Morehouse University in Atlanta. And then he goes to a theological seminary in Pennsylvania, gets another bachelor's degree, um, and basically gets his theology degree, another bachelor's from Crozier up in, um, in Pennsylvania. And um, he's already known as a speaker. He's been, back when he was in Morehouse, he was on a debate team, um, known for his oratory. And then he decides to pursue a PhD and goes to Boston. Now he's in the Northeast, and he's in um, Boston for mm, four or five years, um, gets his PhD in systematic theology. And during that period of time, while he's in Boston, He's also preaching and an assistant pastor at the 12th Baptist Church in Boston, a historic African-American church. Um, in fact, it infamously in 1840 split off from another older African-American church because they didn't feel that they were being vocal enough and outspoken enough about the situation of slavery. And so the 12th Baptist Church in Boston gets formed and um, this is a historic church, and then he is now an assistant pastor at this church, and he's getting his degree in systematic theology. Now, during this period of time, there's a lot of stuff rumbling down in the southern part of this country. And not to say that Boston didn't have a share of racism. I mean, if you read the biography of, um, you know, Bill Russell, who was a famous Boston Celtics basketball player and lived in Boston in the 60s and 70s, you know that Boston didn't have everything solved either. But it was not like the Deep South during this period of time. Now you would think that if here you are an educated man, you have a great degree, you have great speaking ability, you're, you're preaching in one of the most famous African-American churches in the country, you would think that, why would you necessarily need to do something else with your life and go throw yourself in harm's way? I mean, you could spend the next 50 years administering 
to the inner city, to administering to young black youth. You could be preaching the word. It would be in a historic church. You could just stay right there at the 12th Baptist Church of Boston in the Roxbury neighborhood. And why not? You've got a great life ahead of you, a respectable life. People will think, you know, highly of you. But there is a better choice to be made. Because in the 40s and 50s, there were lots of rumblings about things changing. People like Thurgood Marshall trying court cases at the Supreme Court. He won 29 of 32 cases that he tried at the Supreme Court level. And one of them in 1946, um, it was Irene Morgan versus the state of Virginia. And um, that was the first one about interstate busing, where you couldn't necessarily tell a black person to go to the back of the bus. And he won that case in front of the Supreme Court. And of course, that was largely ignored in the South, but it was on record, it was precedent. There were rumblings and things that were going on that said that times are changing. And as opposed to him staying there in Boston, in a respectable life, in a life that probably would have been comfortable, probably would have been well paid for, he chose to do something hard something different. He decided to go back to the Deep South and to put himself in harm's way. And one of the first things that he did in 1955, he, he got his degree in 1955, uh, his um, thesis was approved. Um, he goes back to 1955 and joins the Montgomery bus boycott about another situation with Rosa Parks. Only this time, he's talking about civil disobedience and about nonviolent disobedience. And there were members of the African-American community at that time in the Deep South that were like, wait a second, we're making some good progress with Thurgood Marshall, we're making some good progress with other things that are going on. Why do we need to do something that's going to just piss everybody off? Let's, let's, let's not do that. And here he is taking the, the chance of now leading his comfortable life in Boston and going to a place where a lot of the white population is going to despise him, hate him, and then he also takes the opportunity to maybe even upset a good section of the African-American community by not going down the path that they wanted to go down. And as we know what happened with Rosa Parks and how much of a landmark that was, how much of a stake in the ground that was, saying that you can't just pass laws in the North and then ignore them in the South. Here we've got something that happened in the South and we're going to actually have civil disobedience. We are actually going to speak out. We are actually going to have a boycott. We are going to put ourselves in harm's way. And then he forms the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which basically was harnessing the power of the black churches in 1957, a couple of years later. And Billy Graham, one of the most beloved people in America, befriends him and starts supporting him. And now he's got a friendship with Billy Graham. And he starts collecting other powerful people, white people in power that are supporting him. And he's going down this path. In 1961, there was the Atlanta desegregation of lunch counters in schools. He goes and puts himself in harm's way again. And then the very famous um, 
March to Washington, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, 1963. And that's where he has the, the famous I Have a Dream speech, which is called the I Have a Dream speech now, but if you were to look at his notes when he started the speech, it was not called the I Have a Dream speech. It was for equality and freedom for basically it was, it was about jobs and that's what that whole march was about, was about the equality of, of um, hiring and employment. And here he is trying to meet the moment. He is here back in the South. He's out of his comfortable life in Boston. Not that it would have been comfortable, but by comparison. And he's giving this speech that he's prepared. And one of his friends, Michaela Jackson, who was a gospel singer, who I, I believe was performing that day, she would think she was on stage behind him. There were six different speakers, and during his speech, he's talking and whatever, and there's a lot of call and response, the way you find a lot in the, the Baptist church. And during his speech, you can hear it. If you listen to the whole speech, there's a lot of activity from the audience. And one of them is Michaela Jackson, and she starts calling out, tell them about the dream. Tell them about the dream. Now, he had, a, he had a, a speech already prepared, and he could have just kept going, but the thing that people remember most is the section about the dream, and he just pivots right in that moment, and he hears what Michaela Jackson is saying to him, and he goes forward with the seven or eight stanzas that most people, you know, recite and remember that, you know, which, which ends with, you know, I have a dream that my four little children will one day be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Just kind of, just the synopsis of what his entire cause was about. And he comes up with this because in the moment, he's not going with necessarily what he was going to say, but he just goes with improv. And he keeps looking at what is being asked of me in this moment. Very soon after, we have the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and then he goes to Selma, and now we have the Voting Act, and keeps putting himself in harm's, harm's way. Later in 1965, the Voting Act is passed, because they were down there, he was down there with John Lewis, um, another speaker, the youngest speaker at the, um, the March on Washington, um, who was running a, another student group out of Greensboro, North Carolina, and and, and they were trying to sign up people to vote in Selma, Alabama, and there was all sorts of harassment and stopping of that. So we have the very famous, you know, march to Montgomery from Selma, trying to get across the bridge. And um, this is the first time national attention is actually brought, because now we have video cameras showing the abuse, showing the harassment, showing the hatred. Putting himself in harm's way over and over again at the end of that, he goes to, you know, Montgomery on the state capital, Montgomery being the capital of Alabama, and um, he basically has the speech with the famous line talking about how because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. All of these things not actually possible if he stays in Boston having an admirable life, making a good choice. And the Voting Rights Act was passed later in August of 1965. All springing from that. 
So you would think now here's an individual who is gaining power, who is gaining influence, who is changing things, who is making a difference in the world. Let's just keep going that way. And then the Vietnam War breaks out. And he's silent about this for more than a year, doesn't really say anything. And Thich Nhat Hanh, one of our beloved Buddhist monks who recently passed, writes him a letter and talks about the fact that his voice, his voice is so needed in America right now about the Vietnam War. Now he's already got enough people at this time that are enemies of him. He already has enough trouble. But why not talk about the Vietnam War? And so in 1967, in a very famous speech in New York, he actually does start talking about the Vietnam War and the protest about the injustice of that. And for all the money that we might be spending on that, while there is so much inequality in our own country, and how can he support something that would put other, as he put it, little brown children in harm's way. And of course, what does this do? Well, he loses the support of Billy Graham. He loses the support of the Washington Post and the New York Times, and he starts losing a lot of white liberal America. He could have just kind of been like, I'm making enough of a difference with what I'm doing. Somebody else can speak out about the Vietnam War. I'm going to stay the path of making a difference. It's just too risky. But no, he speaks out. What was the appropriate response? Not seeking my personal comfort, not seeking my personal glory and fame, being willing to give away even the social capital that I've built up because something is the right thing to do. He had a cause to serve and to meet what the times were calling for. And this is essentially the Buddhist path. What are the times calling for? What is equanimity? What is balance? What is balance in this moment? What is meeting the moment? Bussing the tables. The moment is calling for me to move quickly. Sometimes the moment is calling for me to move slowly. The whole story of the Buddha is being born into opulence and then going to asceticism and almost killing himself and realizing you can get addicted to asceticism because you just basically just default to no for whatever it is. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And that becomes an, addic an addiction or an obsession. Or you go to opulence and you try to make everything comfortable and kind of keep tweaking your life. How comfortable can I make this? How convenient can I make that? That was not the path of the Buddha. The Buddha was doing the hard thing, which is using the discernment in each moment as the moment arises to try to meet the moment and to try to see what the moment is asking of me with the next person that's in front of me. With the next small moment that I am navigating by myself in my house or my apartment that no one else will ever know. Where I'm putting my mind. Where I'm putting my time. What action I am actually taking. Balance is hard. Balance is hard. 
I always think of that machine that came out about 20 years ago called the Segway, you know, two-wheeled machine, and you it, it balances itself. And the only way it does is that right in the core of the machine, there is this um, gyroscope where it, about a thousand times a second, goes left and right, forward and backward, and it just like it balances itself. Constantly balancing itself is what the Segway is doing. And so we're never actually in a frozen moment. We're organic, we're moving. So we're never actually like a rock, like, okay, I'm balanced and I'm never gonna move. Actually, we're just coming back into balance continuously. We're surfing, if you will. We're constantly trying to be with what the wave is asking us in this moment. And that takes discernment, that takes a willingness to be with what the moment is asking for, to be paying attention. Most people will never know what it is that I turn away from. That is the truth of being a human being. What I'm doing inside my head, how much I'm listening to you as you speak, how much I'm paying attention while I'm making my bed in the morning, how much I'm thinking about what is appropriate for my life versus what is comfortable for my life. The sentence that I'm not saying that is appropriate that needs to be said by somebody but I'm not saying it because why not let somebody else take all that heat? Ego and conflict are some of the hardest places to practice in the Buddhist life where my ego is at risk or people are going to think poorly of me or I'm going to have to deal with the fact that you don't like what I just said or did. Those are some of the hardest moments. And I think of this moment that, that I'll never forget. Um, I was working in the Middle East in Amman, Jordan with a nonprofit. And um, there was the head of these, these projects that I was working for. He was the head of Middle Eastern projects for this foundation. His name was Corey Erickson. And I used to go to his house for these meetings about once a week. And me and all the other volunteers would go to his house about once a week. And we would sit around his dining room table, and we would talk about what was going on with the different area that we were working in. And um, sometimes we'd have some debates, sometimes we'd have some arguments. Usually it was pretty cordial and friendly. But for whatever reason, me and Corey got into this argument. Corey was a very passionate person. He was also a very loving and warm person. And um, I just always thought the way that Corey met people and met moments was just looking back at it, very Buddhist. Um, he, he kind of had the ability to say what needed to be said and could give constructive feedback, but he was a really warm person. For whatever reason, me and Corey get into this argument, and I forget what it was about, and then it turned kind of heated and a little bit personal, and I was like, you know, well, you're not listening to me, you don't understand me, and he's just like, you know, you're being disrespectful, and you're blah, 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 whatever, and you're making a mistake, and he got kind of heated and started saying some stuff that he didn't mean to say, and I did too. Uh, I'm only 21 years old, and I'm just like, I'm just going to storm out of here and make a point. So I got up, and I stormed out, and I slammed the door, and I was like, oh, shoot. I walked down the wrong hallway. I'm in his bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and there's all these other people around the table out there in the living room. And I just really embarrassed myself. Oh, ego. And I'm just like, what do I do now? What do I do now? I just had this heated 
exchange with Corey, and I'm mad at him, and I think he's wrong, and now I'm in his bathroom. Um, all right, I know what I'm gonna do. All right, I'm just gonna like count to three, I'm gonna open the door, I'm gonna walk really quickly, I'm gonna walk back down the hallway, I'm gonna walk around the, the behind the, where, where everyone's sitting, I'm just gonna go out the other side, slam the door, and walk home. And just, it'll just take 10 seconds, I can make myself do this. And I walk out really quickly. And as soon as I walk into the room, Corey stands up and he walks over and he, he gets right in front of my face and he puts his arms around my neck and he says, Michael, I'm so sorry for how I treated you. I just so respect you and the way I treated you, even though maybe some of the stuff I said I meant, the way I did it was disrespectful. I love you and I think you are a valuable part of this project. Please forgive me. Now, the culture that I came from, that's not how you settle disputes. And most cultures, that's not how you learn to settle disputes. And I just melted. By the time he was done talking, there were tears going down my face. Being willing to meet what the moment asked for. I mean, Corey, I'm sure, was still a little bit upset with me. And he could have, like, followed up with me two days later after he calmed down or whatever. But no. Right then, that's what the moment was asking for, was to be there with me and to actually do the hard thing, put his ego aside. You know what it's like when you're mad at somebody, but to have an open stance toward them as opposed to this stance? That's a hard one. That's a hard one. Now, I'm not talking about personal safety and healthy boundaries, but I'm talking about those normal daily conflicts that you get into where people disagree with each other, they act unskillfully, and you're kind of mad. These things happen between human beings. And what is it like in the midst of that to find an open stance, to find what the moment is asking for, and to just go through that pain, that emotional pain of, oh, doing the thing that is hard. If you've had the first cookie, Maybe it's not cookie time anymore. And sometimes that can be really hard. Now maybe I should find another analogy for the rest of the talk in case anybody <laughs> has difficulty with cookies. Um, but whatever it is for you, the thing that you feel like, yeah, I should do this. And that's a lot of what the practice is about, is bringing awareness to our situation so that then we can see what maybe the appropriate response is. And a lot of times in life we're really foggy about what maybe the ultimate response is, and that's the trick, or the key. There is no ultimate response. It's a direction, not a destination. You just get better at it. And each moment is improv. Just like Martin Luther King Jr. with the March on Washington, it's improv. What the moment is asking for. And this moment you might not be so great at, but Life doesn't give you anything but improv, so you just have to take your best stab at the moment as it's happening. And then you just go into the next moment. And if it was unskillful and you see that in your rearview mirror, then you get to practice moving through the difficult thing and saying, sorry about that. And moving through the thing that is difficult, moving through that pain. And the thing that's really interesting about moving through difficult things, things we don't want to do but we think we should, is that in the last, I think, 18 months, some papers have been uh, published, more than two or three, I think more than five, 
Um, and if any of you ever listened to Andrew Huberman with the Huberman podcast, he's a neuroscientist at Stanford. And he had this thing on will and doing difficult things. And he identifies this part of the brain that they are now starting to study called the anterior mid-cingulate cortex. I mean, it could be called anything, but it's just, it's the area of the brain. In fact, there's two of them, cortices. They're, and it's called the anterior mid-cingulate cortex. And there you have two of them. And you can put people through regimens where they weren't doing something, and then they had to do something really difficult over the course of three to six months. And you can actually notice that that section of the brain grows. <laughs> and, the, and, and you can actually put someone in a, a, in a really opulent life where they're not challenged and you get everything away from them, and you can actually notice that it shrinks. You, you can actually start to measure this. It's a really interesting podcast from Andrew Huberman about will and about neuroscience and being able to actually measure um, moving through the thing that is difficult, the thing that is hard. The Buddhist life is constantly asking, what is the moment asking for? And to come back into balance, to just meet the moment. And we start to grow. The more that we are used to, the more that we divorce ourselves from comfort. Comfort is great when you enjoy the thing that's happening right now. If the thing that's happening right now is the thing that you enjoy, totally enjoy it. You don't have to eschew enjoyment in life. And when that moment is over, like, have you ever been in a situation where everyone is saying something that's funny and one person says something that's just hilarious and you start to laugh and it's a lot of fun to laugh and everyone's laughing and then somebody else says something that's also really funny and then you start laughing more and then someone else says something else that's even funnier and then you're even laughing more and then you really want to keep laughing and someone else tries to say something funny but it's not really that funny and then someone else tries to say something else that's funny like oh, okay yeah, we're, we're really trying to hold on to that moment, but the moment's gone. The moment's gone. The momentum of, of hilarity actually passed. It's, it's done. And that's what we, we, we often try to do in life, is to hold on too long and to grasp like we can own um, enjoyment in some sort of way. But learning to be with the thing that's difficult, you can actually grow a part of your brain through that sort of practice through learning to be with the thing that is difficult and learning the habit of just, okay, I know that if I say this, this person's not going to be happy with me, but I'm pretty sure it needs to be said. I'm going to do the most skillful job I can of saying the thing and then I will deal with the consequences and then just jump through and the more you practice that sort of thing, the more that you start to realize that, wow, the world continues. And I made it through, and I continued, and nothing ended. And um, there's ways to actually breathe in the middle of saying something like that. And you get used to the, just the whole flow of that. And how it feels in the body feels a little bit different. So here we are today celebrating a life that was largely about what is the moment asking for? And I'm willing to let go of that wonderful 
support that I get from the New York Times and the Washington Post and Billy Graham. I'm willing to let go of what could be a really respectable life in a northeast city in Boston. And I'm going to put myself in harm's way because that's what the moment is asking for. And it's hard to even imagine what things will be like on the other side. There's a certain faith that it takes, realizing that I'm actually going to feel different and be different as I get used to meeting moments. It's almost like if you had a 24th century tool belt. What would those tools be like? I can't even imagine it. But it's like if you were now, as an adult, trying to describe to your four-year-old self why it is that you should make mature adult choices. It's very difficult to spell that out. And the Buddhist path embraces the organic learning of just doing something simple, trying to meet the next moment. Because then you will organically live into what is appropriate. You will organically start to see where it is I should put my time, my resources. Organically start to see what it is that I should be doing. And we have teachers all around us who meet moments. Have you ever done that? Like tried to look at somebody who meets a moment in a certain way, who has an ability that maybe you don't have? And just noticing the, the nuanced way in which they just show up and, and meet the moment. A little bit later we'll have Q&A, questions and answers, or questions, answers, and comments. And I always think of my teacher, Ryushin Paul Haller, and how he, um, no matter what anybody asks him, he usually leaves the person feeling like they asked the most brilliant question on the planet. And I'm just like, how does he do that? He just like, you know, I think of this monk that I was with at Tassahara from Japan. I sat next to him for Tongario and for the whole practice period. He had these beautiful robes that he had gotten. And um, he had already been to Maheji for five years. He knew all the stuff inside and out. But he had this certain way of doing the forms where he would just meet the moment where, as opposed to being you know, I mean, at the time, I was brand new to practice, and I was really trying to, like, memorize, okay, when do I bow, when do I turn, how do I, you know, like, really kind of want to perform and, and do it as, as quickly and as soon as we should do it, you know. And he just seemed to be doing it with this grace and ease, like, I'm not going to be the first person in the Sangha to bow at the altar, but I'm not going to be the last. I'm just going to be right in the middle of everyone, continuously. And he never really stood out. It was like he was just kind of like flowing through all of us, just being with, just like, what was going on. And I was like, that, that right there, that's like, it's not just meeting the moment, but it's making me remember that meeting the moment isn't a destination. It's like a continuous unfolding nuance of practice of how the moment can't possibly be met in all of its different technicolor and topography. There's so many different ways. And there's another monk um, here in San Francisco, um, another monk raised in Japan, and I love the way that he 
um, embodies forms and um, in, in, in his case I noticed that um, he is so precise with clothing and with forms and he's always just like spot on just like at all times he just seems to be so precise but most people that I know are that precise and are that buttoned up come across as cold and there's something about his eyes he's always smiling and he's always like makes everyone around him feel like we're just having a good time here and this is great and we're practicing Zen Buddhism and these are the forms and they're awesome and there's something about the way that he embodies them that seems so human that seems so just like meeting what the moment is asking for what the forms are asking for the forms are only of any value when they help me study this body and this mind in this moment before that, they're just a bunch of things people made up. And he's embodying that and showing me that, hey, I can take this on as a practice container and I can do it with warmth, with joy, and I can do it in a way that makes you feel invited in too. Meeting the moment with full body, not just with what someone says, but how someone is actually going through the world, what the moment is asking for. It wasn't just the decisions that Martin Luther King Jr. made. It was the way he spoke. It was his words and his word choice and his love and his warmth and his passion. It was a bodhisattva way to be burned up in this life, to use this life as something that is useful for the world and not a vessel to be preserved. Yes, it's great to get good sleep and to eat healthy and to exercise. Those are things that are brilliant to do, and there's plenty of opportunities to do those things. But the vessel itself, the whole reason for those things is to burn it up, is to give it in service to the world. Motivated by a cause, the Bodhisattva way is to live in a certain way and to adopt these Zen principles, not so that me, Michael, can suffer less. That's where I start with the practice in a small way, but so that I can actually be a gift to the world, so that I can have that emotional reservoir inside expanded a little bit, so that I have space to absorb the person next to me and their imperfections, without being totally overwhelmed because I'm so tight. In April of 1968, before he reached his 40th birthday, Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered. And almost as though he knew it, in Memphis, the night before he gave a talk, his last sermon was, I think, in February, um, back at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in, in Atlanta, where he and... Um, his um, father actually had been co-pastors. Um, but this is in Memphis, and he gave a talk the night before. Before he flew to Memphis, there were some bomb threats toward to his airplane, and so there were a lot of scares going on. And he gave this talk, and I want to quote a, just a little piece of it. And he says, well, I don't know what will happen now, but we've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. 
Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land, and I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land, so I'm happy tonight, and I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. That was the last public speech he gave before he was killed. Bodhisattvas are servants, and they're looking to make an impact on the world, and it is never bigger than the next moment you will meet. The next moment you will meet. That's what is being asked of me and of you. What is the moment asking for? Now that speech I was talking about, the sermon, his last sermon, that he gave in February of 1968, he talked about how he wanted to be remembered. And that's what I want to end with. And on Monday, I hope you do something to remember the example of what his life was about, what it symbolized. And to just think and to feel and to ground yourself in what a life lived in service of others can do on the planet. This is from Martin Luther King Jr.'s last sermon. <clears throat> talking about a day in which he would be remembered at his funeral. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I didn't try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. And I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shadow things will not matter. I don't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine, luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.